ASIP, the voice of interventional pain management. The ASIP podcast is sponsored by Medtronic, your partner in personalized pain solutions for patients with musculoskeletal pain, cancer pain, severe spasticity, or chronic pain. To learn more about Medtronic Solutions, call 888-638-7627 or visit back.com. The ASIP podcast is also sponsored by Boston Scientific. In a registry of 800 patients, 72% of patients used multiple waveforms when given the option. Boston Scientific's Precision Spectra SCS system offers customized pain relief delivering multiple waveforms to a precise neural target. You want options? Boston Scientific delivers. Welcome once again to the ASIP Podcast. This is Tom Pergy, and on this edition, we'll be talking with Christy Davies of Apex Biologics, about the business potential of adding regenerative medicine procedures to your practice. Our new segment has a story about a pain medication that is showing promise as a treatment for Alzheimer's disease, new hope for eliminating opioid tolerance, the pay gap between male and female doctors, and much more. Well, in response to member demand, we will be offering a spinal cord stimulation Comprehensive Review Course and Cadaver Workshop, October 21st and 22nd. That course will be held in Orlando, Florida. There's a lot happening in spinal cord stimulation technology these days with companies offering high-frequency stimulation, paresthesia-free stimulation, and more. So this is your chance to find out more about these advanced pain procedures. Uh, Registration information can be found. On our website, that is, of course, www.asip.org. The ASIP podcast is sponsored in part by Stimwave, maker of the Freedom Spinal Cord Stimulation System. Find out more about the Freedom Spinal Cord System at www.stimwave.com. And by St. Jude Medical, makers of spinal cord stimulation and radiofrequency therapy products. Visit them at professional.sjm.com. Up next, we talk to Christy Davies of Apex Biologics about the business aspects of regenerative medicine. Stay with us here on the ASIP Podcast. Joining us here on the ACIP podcast is Christy Davies of Apex Biologics. And Christy is going to talk about the business end of adding regenerative medicine to your practice. And uh, Christy is joining us via Skype from where are you? Is it Idaho or Utah? I'm in Idaho today. Idaho today. Story. <laughs> okay, but, but, but you live in, in Idaho. That's I where do. I'm, I'm very blessed to live right along the Snake River Canyon. That's where Evil Knievel did his famous jump. Yes, it is. Um, actually, about three miles from where I'm sitting. <laughs> You're not planning on doing anything like that. No. <laughs> and I'm sure Evil Knievel could have used a lot of regenerative medicine back in his heyday. I Maybe even today. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Apex Biologics, let's, uh, let's talk about 
uh, what Apex Biologics is and what your role is with the company. Sure. And thank you for asking and thank you for having me on this today, Tom. Um, Apex Biologics is a full service regenerative medicine company that is providing not just a great product line, but as well as the services and um, supplies that they need for success to help build their practice around regenerative medicine. And so we have everything from um, like I said, a, a great supply line, in, uh, which includes the PRP or platelet-rich plasma line, the bone marrow concentrate, the adipose um, concentration devices, as well as allograft products such as amniotic tissue and cord blood stem cell. And then, oh, I'm sorry. You know, I, I was going to say, we're, we're not going to be talking about the, the medical or the scientific end. We're going to be talking about the business end of regenerative medicine. And that's pretty much what you specialize in with Apex, correct? Yes, it is. Yes. Sorry. Thanks for keeping me back on track there. Um, And so as far as on the business sides of things, there's a great um, business opportunity with marketing as well as clinic support in getting your practice set up, you know, what you might need licensing wise. Do you need a different site? Um, Some of the paperwork that you might need to get your business started in the regenerative medicine side of things. So this is so regenerative medicine. I guess like uh, adding anything to a practice, uh, physician doesn't just wake up one morning saying, "I'm going to do regenerative medicine starting today." There's a lot of groundwork that needs to be done ahead of time, and that's uh, what we're going to try to talk about here today on the ASIP podcast. But first, I think we need to define some terms. What do we mean exactly by regenerative medicine? Sure. Well, regenerative medicine are therapies that have been developed uh, through through research and science to that are that really truly help regenerate the body. They are the the healing aspects of our body that we already have within us, but yet are unable to actually access them without having certain processing done. So, um, just to briefly touch on the science, the the platelet-rich plasma where we draw blood out, we spin down and concentrate those platelets and activate them so that when they go into a targeted area, they are able to actually go to work and help regenerate that specific site that they are, they are working on. Now, the typical, uh, the bread and butter, I say, the, the bread and butter uh, techniques, procedures that IPM physicians do are the Epidural injections, the facet joint injections, nerve blocks, things like that. But PRP and stem cell injections are different, and they're a different source of, of revenue. How, how does regenerative medicine compare to the traditional IPM treatments? Sure. So most of the regenerative medicine procedures that we've been discussing and and that Apex Biologics is um, working with physicians on, they are cash paying procedures. So you you would not need to be billing your insurance. You're actually going to collect that money up front from those patients. And because it is a cash model, you're able to do some things that you normally would not be able to do in an insurance practice. Um, You can charge what the market will bear, uh, you can give discounts. You can do some of those things that you're restricted with with um, contracts around insurance. Well, all right. Since you've brought it up, reimbursement. Uh, PRP stem cells are not reimbursable at this time. Is that correct? 
That is correct. For the for about 80 to 90 percent of the cases, um, we're seeing more and more workman's comps that are actually paying for these services. And so if you're a physician that's providing workman's comp to your patients and you're interested in perhaps doing a regenerative medicine or a stem cell uh, procedure, I would certainly recommend reaching out to that carrier and see if they will cover it. Obviously, make sure you understand what um, that they're, what they're going to reimburse for it before you uh, go ahead and do that. But a lot of work comps are wanting to have their patients avoid surgery, which means a longer time out of work. Um, surgeries are obviously much more expensive than an injection, and they're trying to keep their costs down as well as provide good services for their patients that they have. And so a lot of workman's comps are um, actually paying for work for uh, regenerative medicine, as well as we're seeing a few of the TRICARE carriers that will pay for some of the services as well. And TRICARE, that's uh, military, correct? Yes, sir, it is. It is military. Uh, So Medicare, Medicaid, not reimbursable from that? No, they are. It is not. And so in order to really collect from those patients, of course, you need to be getting an ABN on file to um, allow for you to collect that money up front. And there is a a T code or a a category three code that you can bill in for that service. And primarily it is denied saying that it's not allowable charge and you can, you can actually bill the patient for it. All right. So let's talk about some real numbers here. You recently uh, gave a lecture at a regenerative uh, medicine uh, course that ASIP sponsored, and you had some uh, specific numbers uh, as part of your presentation. Let, let's go through some of those right now, if, if you're ready for that. We, we can talk about uh, the PRP as well as stem cell because they're both, uh, or they, they are different uh, numbers involved with, with the two of them. The stem cell procedures are, I guess, more involved, so they cost more as right. opposed to the PRP. That is correct. That is correct. So your costs for doing the PRP injections are lowered, and that's primarily because of the supplies that are needed for that procedure, as well as the technical difficulty of that. Um, the PRP preparation primarily can be done by a medical assistant or a nurse um, for with the drawing of the blood and then the par- processing of the platelets. And it's not a very difficult process. Um, we we train people how to how to do it often. And so your costs are lower. There's the hard cost of the kit, which primarily runs between um, $220, $230, up to upwards around $275, just depending on um, the volume of kits you're buying and the different product lines that are out there. And so I'm giving you a, a range in there. And so when you're looking at billing for a PRP injection, most of the doctors that we work with, you know, are they're charging upwards of nine hundred to a thousand dollars for a PRP injection, and so, for, um, for example, um, if someone who needs a hip injection and they would like to have PRP done, and you're going to charge them a thousand dollars for that hip injection, and your hard costs out of pocket between the kit and your office overhead for the room. Uh, you know, and then your other little basic supplies, such as the needle that you're going to inject with and maybe a drape, you're looking at around $300. So you potentially could be looking at close to a $700 um, gross profit on each of these procedures that you're doing. And um, we build a practice model around working a half day a week um, in regenerative medicine, and it can really um, build up into a very nice, healthy uh, <laughs> a healthy profit center for your practice well, taking uh, that- over time. 
Yeah, taking that and extrapolating it over uh, a year's time. So you're saying $700 uh, per procedure for the profit, five of them a week, let's say. So that's $3,500. And then you multiply that by 50, giving mm-hmm. giving them a two-week vacation, as you said during your lecture. Yeah, let them have a couple weeks off. <laughs> everybody, everybody needs some time off. Uh, we're talking about $175,000 per year is the way it works out by doing the five a week. Right. And that's gross profit. That's um, that's after your hard costs are out of there. So that's really, I mean, that's really money in the doctor's doctor's pocket. That's, that's the, in, you know, coming into them. And then there's even uh, greater numbers when we start talking about the stem cell procedures, uh, around $4,000, say average and uh, on the charge. And a fifteen hundred dollar cost, so that is projected at twenty five hundred dollars profit, and only doing two of those a week over a year's time—that's two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. That's correct. That's correct. So you really, truly, um, you don't need to have a tremendous amount of patience, and I think that's what a lot of doctors are intimidated by. They're worrying about replacing their insurance practice with regenerative medicine patients, and really, you can build a very nice. Um, financially healthy practice just in, uh, you know, seven patients a week, which is um, with, you know, with good marketing and good um, patient referrals and, and with the right um, changes, you know, right touches in your office, you truly could build your regenerative practice and regenerative medicine practice in a half day a week. Now that all sounds well and good, but there are some capital costs too, because uh, I call them the spinners, but the centrifuges, uh, they're going to have to buy one of those, correct? Correct. To correct. do the PRP. And so what kind of costs are we talking about there? Sure. So the centrifuges are, it's actually a great time to get into the market because they have all come down um, um, and things have sort of leveled off. But um, primarily on average um, for a good system, you're looking right at right around $2,000 uh, cost for a centrifuge to do the harvesting process of this. And then a... Uh, an ultrasound because a, a, a C arm would not be uh, appropriate for for these type of injections. You know, you don't need the whole the full fluoroscopy. Right. So you for um, the only time you'd really need fluoro, and it depends on the doctor himself as well. But if you're doing disc injections, okay. Um, so, some of the joint injections are a little bit easier to see under a C arm, but if you um, we're really looking to want to break into building your practice around regenerative medicine. A lot of doctors could add in procedures they weren't that they weren't doing before, such as tendon injections, um, some of the other joint injections that they weren't doing before that they might have been referring off to an orthopod for steroids or evaluation, or maybe even a PM&R doc to um, provide some of those services. And so they can actually retain those patients in their clinic and help get them better and really um, partner with them on on that healing process of the pain that's actually inhibiting them from doing the things that they're enjoying. So, you know, maybe a patient is coming in to see the doctor and they're complaining of neck pain. And this is just a very broad uh, 
example, but it, you know, it may turn out that they truly have a trapezius pull or a, or a tear in their rotator cuff or something that's not really spine related. And so they might be a really good candidate for regenerative medicine. Well, before a lot of um, IPM physicians would refer these cases out. Well, if they're providing regenerative medicine and they have an ultrasound in their facility, they can actually inject that patient right there um, under ultrasound with PRP and and get that patient feeling better and and help buy that patient loyalty that we're all looking for in the patients that we're trying to obtain. Um, we tend to get patients much further down the road in their injury process. And if we're starting to get um, patients coming in sooner and, uh, and reaching out to that patient population that has uh, newer, fresher injuries, we're going to get more people better faster. And the patients are going to love it, of course. And, and so are the doctors because they're going to really enjoy patient population uh, that they're working with. Let's talk a little bit uh, about training, not so much for the physician, but uh, a physician staff. What type of training does the staff need to go through uh, when these procedures are added to a practice? Sure, that's a great question. Um, So you need to have someone in your office that can draw blood and uh, you know, someone who has a little bit of experience in it, it because you do have to draw out 50 cc's of blood. So someone who is good with a butterfly, um, you're primarily going to be able to get this antecubital and uh, and get that blood draw the first time. And, and, and I have too many challenges with that if you have someone who can draw blood. Um, they're going to need to understand sterile technique and be able to follow the instructions on the processing part. But for the most part, most of our staff that we work with are trained over a webcast very similar to the podcast that we're doing right now. Um, Or we also have uh, video training where they can actually watch the process and we can send them a practice kit and they can practice in their office before they actually start doing cases. So it's not as cumbersome as perhaps, um, you know, when we're doing this, you know, when we're training for spinal cord stimulators and things like that, we have to have a rep come in and, and um, they're the only ones that can handle all this. The staff can be very hands-on with this and um, as well as the physician. And it does not really take very long for the staff to understand the process at all. At the beginning of this uh, interview, we talked a little bit about how this is in some ways a, a different audience, a, a different patient set uh, than what IPM physicians normally have because of it being a cash business or a cash procedure. Talk a little bit about how marketing ha- would be uh, tailored to a cash audience, a cash business. Well, marketing is a key ingredient for success uh, <laughs> uh, for, for this, bringing this into practice, because we are recommending that you know, even though you may have some patients that are good candidates within your current practice, chances are good the majority of these patients are going to be outside in the public. And we're going to need to reach out to them in a manner that is attractive for them to come in, which is, I'm going to, I'm going to just venture to say that that is, um, that's stepping out onto um, a, a bridge that most IPM physicians maybe have not um, done before and may be a little bit uncomfortable with. But <laughs> um, with my experience in working with IPM physicians, that they, they don't necessarily like to, to market to the public. And so when I'm talking to them about that, it's just that, you know, the marketing that you're going to do, you want to be very careful that you are looking to attract a patient 
um, that is specifically looking for regenerative medicine or for someone who is very active or sports oriented or someone who just leaves an active lifestyle, you know, could out, you know, could even be a, um, someone retired who likes to walk or golf or hike or, um, that type of thing. You're not going to market to your typical pain patient because you may then of course get in, um, some patients that are not necessarily a good fit for regenerative medicine. And so it's important that whoever is assisting with you with your marketing understands what your true message is so that you are uh, marketing and reaching out to the patient population that you truly are trying to target and get. And there's a lot of programs out there now that will help you with this. Um, A lot of different organizations that can help you um, maximize on your investment, so to speak, so that you're not wasting marketing dollars chasing the wrong patient. Well, do you recommend then that uh, a physician who wants to add these procedures set up a a separate business, uh, a separate practice for this, or should they fold it into their existing pain practice? Uh, That's another good question. Um, I'm full of of good questions. (laughs) You are full of good questions today. You you must have had a good rest after getting home from Vegas the other day. (laughs) I did. I I had a wonderful time (laughs) sleeping all day. (laughs) <laughs> I heard maybe a little snooze on the plane on the way home too was uh, was occurring. Yes, it was to to the amusement of my uh, traveling companions. But uh, again, <laughs> yeah, let's get back to to the question: Sh- Should because this is a, a different patient set and and actually regenerative versus a, a pain practice, should it be separated in terms right. of even calling it something different? Absolutely. So a lot of physicians, we like to start um, a little bit slow and, you know, they may just want to, as you say, just kind of started with their current practice and then grow it from there. And that where they may just be doing a procedure or two a month until they really get a good feel for this and and start to attract some patients and then want to separate it off. And then some doctors are like, you know what, I want to get this set up now because what I know is that as I get busier, it's going to be more difficult to separate it. So our recommendation is um, truly that you get a different business entity name, a different tax ID, so that you're able to then um, uh, get get to have that separate organization, separate practice name that you're operating under for your regenerative medicine practice. Okay. So you do recommend then that that the two be separated? We do. Okay. Anything that we haven't uh, covered regarding the business end of, of regenerative medicine, Christy? Well, um, just just that it's not uh, um, as intimidating as some physicians might feel it is. Um, there's a lot of good research out there now for PRP, and there's a lot of physicians that are devoted to getting more studies going for more stem cell studies as far as the bone marrow concentrate and, and others even, you know, in the Allograph product line. Um, but a great place to start is with platelet-rich plasma. It's not very expensive to get started these days, and there's a lot of great education out there to help um, uh, give you the, the support that you need and the confidence that you need to bring these therapies into your office. All right, a new uh, potential revenue stream for physicians that are already comfortable with injections, and that would be uh, PRP and stem cells. Thanks so much, Christy Davies of Apex Biologics, for talking with us here on the ACIP podcast. You're very welcome. I look forward to seeing you soon, Tom. The ACIP podcast is sponsored by Boston Scientific. In a registry of 800 patients, 
72% of patients used multiple waveforms when given the option. Boston Scientific's Precision Spectra SCS system offers customized pain relief, delivering multiple waveforms to a precise neural target. You want options? Boston Scientific delivers. The ASAP podcast is also sponsored by Medtronic, your partner in personalized pain solutions for patients with musculoskeletal pain, cancer pain, severe spasticity, or chronic pain. To learn more about Medtronic Solutions, call 888-638-7627 or visit back.com. Let's take a look at some pain-related medical news that you might have missed. Substance P. It has been the target for pain research for years, without much success. What researchers do know about Substance P is that it activates pain in the central nervous system. It was recently discovered that Substance P has the exact opposite effect in the peripheral nervous system. Researchers in China and the United Kingdom have found that Substance P makes peripheral nerve cells less responsive and excitable, resulting in a reduction of pain sensations. In the central nervous system, Substance P excites neurons thereby promoting pain. The drugs that look so promising in the lab failed in clinical trials. In those trials, when substance P was suppressed in the central nervous system, the opposite was occurring in the peripheral nervous system. It is hoped that with this newfound knowledge, a drug can be developed that mimics substance P but does not cross the blood-brain barrier into the central nervous system. Well, we all know that opioids are great at reducing pain, but respiratory depression is the greatest cause of concern when they are prescribed. Researchers at Stanford and the University of California, San Francisco, have discovered a molecule that binds to mu opioid receptors, resulting in pain relief without respiratory depression. The molecule is named PZM21. In a murine model, pain relief lasted longer than morphine. PZM21 seems to preferentially trigger the pathway responsible for pain relief while having no effect on the pathway responsible for arrested breathing. But right now, they have limited evidence that this preference is consistent. Further study is planned. The findings were published in the journal Nature. Acetaminophen's hepatic toxicity is well known, but a retrospective study conducted in Great Britain and reported in JAMA Pediatrics says that women who took acetaminophen while 18 to 32 weeks pregnant were more likely to have children with behavioral problems. According to the study, the children of these women had a 29% increased risk of emotional problems and a 46% increased risk of overall behavioral difficulties. The study surveyed 7,800 women. Now, not treating an expectant mother's fever comes with its own risks. It should be kept in mind that all the researchers found was an association and not a cause and effect. Opioid tolerance leads to escalating doses. So what if the brain mechanism that controls that escalation could be turned off? Researchers at Georgia State University and Emory University in Atlanta claim they have found a way to do that. Their findings were published in the Nature Journal 
neuropsychopharmacology. Their research found that tolerance is caused by an inflammatory response in the brain caused by the release of cytokines. In a rat model, they blocked a particular cytokine, resulting in not only eliminating tolerance, but also cutting in half the dosage of morphine required for pain relief. Well, evidently, opioids are not the only analgesic drugs being abused. According to research presented at the American Association for Clinical Chemistry's annual scientific meeting and clinical lab expo, gabapentin abuse is starting to be found among those who are prescribed opioids. Gabapentin is better known by its brand name, Neurontin. The researchers looked at 323 patients who were prescribed opioids. Their test results showed that about 20% tested positive for gabapentin, even though they did not have a prescription for it. Another proposed fibromyalgia treatment has failed in a randomized trial. Participants in the trial held in Brazil were given 240 milligrams of intravenous lidocaine in saline or saline only once a week for four weeks. The lidocaine group had lower pain scores only at week two of the treatment, but not at any other time point that was assessed over an eight-week period. An NSAID, commonly prescribed for menstrual cramps, shows promise as a treatment for Alzheimer's disease. As reported in Nature Communications, the NSAID mefenamic acid reversed memory loss in a murine model by reducing brain inflammation. 20 mice were genetically engineered to have Alzheimer's disease. After exhibiting memory problems, half of them were administered mefenamic acid for 30 days, while the other half received a placebo. The treated mice showed a complete reversal in their memory loss. Phase 2 trial applications are now being processed. Spending on compounded medications jumped 56% in 2015. Leading the way with some of the most expensive compounded drugs were topical pain creams. Some of these pain creams cost thousands of dollars per two. Looking back over the past 10 years, spending on compounded pain creams and gels increased an incredible 3,466%. According to Kaiser Health News, these skyrocketing costs have raised red flags concerning fraud and overbilling. And finally, it is generally acknowledged that men make more money than women for doing the same job, although there are many who disagree with that premise. But when it comes to medicine, however, it appears to be true. Female doctors were reimbursed nearly $18,700 less than their male counterparts in 2012, with the greatest pay gaps showing up in nephrology, rheumatology, and pulmonary medicine. New research published in the Postgraduate Medical Journal looks at Medicare data for more than 3 million reimbursement claims made by physicians in 2012, breaking those claims down by sex and specialty. Nephrology had the largest pay gap by sex, while critical care saw the smallest, which was still $4,360. The study took productivity, hours worked, and years of experience into account. 
The ACIP Podcast is sponsored in part by St. Jude Medical, makers of spinal cord stimulation and radiofrequency therapy products. Visit them at professional.sjm.com. And by Stimwave, maker of the Freedom Spinal Cord Stimulation System. Find out more about the Freedom Spinal Cord System at www.stimwave.com. That, of course, is the unmistakable sound of bagpipes playing. Now, other than ruining your hearing from a lifetime of exposure to bagpipe music, how bad can the bagpipes be for you? Well, at least from a health standpoint. Well, there is now a warning to bagpipe players to beware of something being called bagpipe lung. The warning comes after the case of a patient who died after a long chronic lung illness that doctors think was caused by breathing in mold and fungi inside the bagpipes he played. Now, there isn't definitive proof that's what caused his death, though his symptoms did fade during a three-month bagpipe hiatus, but doctors say it's a cautionary tale to keep musical instruments clean. The case report was in the journal Thorax. Well, that wraps up this month's ACIP podcast. Send me an email when you get the chance. Let me know what you think about the ACIP podcast. Tom at ASIP.org. T-O-M at A-S-I-P-P dot O-R-G. Thank you for listening to the ASIP podcast, and we'll talk to you again next month.